uh, man, I'm living the dream. <laughs> you are, because you are living my dream. I mean, you are a professional podcaster. This is it. This is your gig. Does your business card say that? Like, podcaster? My business card says nerd. Nerd. So you're that confident? Yes. <laughs> Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of Another Week Ends. But first, I had the distinct privilege this week of sitting down with Mike McCarg. Mike is the host of the Ask Science Mike podcast and the co-host of the Liturgist podcast, both wildly popular and successful, and the author, most recently, of Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science. Here's Mike. Mike, how are you? Uh, man, I'm living the dream. <laughs> you are, because you are living my dream. I mean, you are a professional podcaster. This is it. This is your gig. This is my gig. This is what I do. Does your business card say that? Like, podcaster? My business card says nerd. Nerd. So you're that confident? Yes. <laughs> you're, you're, you are that confident. You're saying, I'm a nerd. There you go. I, Mike, I, so I love your book. And let me tell you, I think it's a really um, challenging thing to write a book about yourself that's not about you. Like, there, it, it doesn't come across as narcissistic in the least. And I, it, it, but it is really personal. And I felt like by the end of the book, I knew you. So congratulations on, on doing that. Yeah. You know, it, it helps that I did not want to write a book about my story. Um, and my first attempt to write it didn't include any memoir content. And uh, it was only talking with some author friends that they're like, well, you know, the reason you get like people call on the phone and fly you to cities is to tell your story. So maybe that would be a good topic for the book and a good vehicle for all these ideas. But ultimately, the book is about the reader and about their process of figuring out where they are with God and if that's something that's important to them or not. And in that way, my my story is only there as a very extended version of the phrase me too. So a lot of people are going to read this book and they're they're I'm the only one who who thinks like this. I'm the only one who is skeptical but longs for the church or I'm the only one in my church who's a skeptic. And the book is just to say no, you're not the only one. There's lots of us who don't feel like they fit cleanly in the categories society wants to hand us about faith and doubt. Yeah, I I yeah, I I think that's really well said because I, I feel like your book gives people permission to have a messy self-understanding. I, I feel like there's a, a big segment of the church that demonizes doubt. And I feel like there's another segment of the church that kind of valorizes doubt, uh, you know, and, and sort of says, if you have anything like childlike faith, you're, you're, you're unsophisticated and you're not a real intellectual or, you know, on the other side, it's, if you have any doubts, you have this spiritual problem and it's a malady. But I mean, you kind of, I mean, you talk, uh, Aldous Huxley says that the world needs more theological psychologists and you kind of talk like a theological psychologist and give people permission, right? I mean, is that part of the purpose of the book to give people permission to explore their own faith and doubt honestly uh, in an unsanitized um, in non-judgmental way. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I've never heard the phrase, but I'm delighted by it. Um, I didn't have any interest in talking about theology for theology's sake. The theological ideas in the book are designed to provide either comfort or understanding for the reader. And I also worked really hard to uh, be gracious to different viewpoints and to show um, why atheism is a really valid worldview. And why, like conservative Christianity, is as well, and and how those happen in the brain, and and why those lived experiences uh, tend to be self reinforcing and validating. And I don't pick like a favorite horse in that race, um, but I, I tried because uh, I knew a lot of people would read this book that weren't just doubting people that had a curiosity either about Christianity or atheism or both. And so what I tried to do is give a really honest but also gracious look at how the world looks through the eyes of a believer or a skeptic. Yeah. And I think you do that really well. I mean, do you think that part of the reason that the book's been 
well received is is that like the tone is more descriptive than prescriptive. I, I feel like this is a it's sort of the old uh, Protest, the old biblical adage, right? The law increases the trespass. I feel like if you tell somebody don't step on the grass, they want to step on the grass. <laughs> so like, I mean, I feel like you describe stuff in, in in rich and thick detail without doing a lot of prescription. So it's like an invitational tone. Yeah, hopefully the book is completely free of prescription if I if I did it well. <laughs> um, I, I very much think that it's not only maybe ethically better, it's actually more effective to make people feel informed and empowered to make their own decisions than to try to convince or coerce them. Um, so my book, as much as possible, never raises someone's uh, defense mechanisms or cognitive defensiveness, because at no point is the book trying to take them somewhere specific or make them believe a specific thing in very much the same way that with my own children, when I've talked to them about, you know, um, like drinking alcohol and like why I do and why I, how much I do and what alcohol you say, does. You say you get drunk off one beer in your book. You do say I get, that. I'm super lightweight, right? And my kids think that's hilarious. And they're like, how are you such a lightweight? And I'm like, well, I never drank when I was your age. So my body didn't build a tolerance. So now I have more fun than my friends with no hangover while spending less money. And so my kids go, oh, wow, that makes a lot of sense. So instead of like demonizing alcohol I've told them about different approaches and the different strategies and what the consequences are and what, you know, what, what, how binge drinking is different. And and the book is very much in that vein. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what's right or wrong, but I will tell you my understanding of the science of different belief systems and what they do to your outlook on the world and, and, and really the structure of your brain. One of the things I love about your book, uh, early on, you sort of tell your story and pivotal in your story are karaoke and World of Warcraft. I I like, I, in all honesty, I quit World of Warcraft as a level 62 hunter elf, but I, but I used to be a karaoke DJ and you describe, you have this beautiful scene where you describe uh, people singing Journey. And so I, it's, I I love it. So that really endeared the book to me, but your story is one that again, I'm sure is not, you're not alone in it. You're in a traditional Southern Baptist church, right? And you realize, wait, I don't think I believe in God anymore. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> and no, you know, I was very surprised by th- by that insight. Um, that wasn't, uh, I didn't have a bone to pick with God. I wasn't like angry. Um, I was reading the Bible a lot and that's what took my faith away. Did you give yourself like a five second rule? Like, okay. Or like a, a two week rule? Like, okay. Like if I doubt for two weeks, I'm still a Christian. But after the, if this doesn't go away for two weeks, then is, was there some sort of like pasteurization period or like, how did it, like, when did you know it stuck? It was it was a process that took months, first of all. But once it finally happened, there was a finality to it. Um, I knew like a fog cleared and suddenly there was light and I knew God was something people made up. And I had just deluded myself into believing there was a, a being, an entity that was a powerful and supreme and be cared personally about me and my life and my prayers. And I felt foolish and ashamed and duped. At the same time, I felt a crushing sense of grief and loss. So it wasn't like, oh, we, I figured out the mystery. It was more like, um, on the one hand, I'd learned something. On the other hand, that knowledge killed something and that something was God. So you killed him. Nietzsche (laughs) Nietzsche was writing about you. You were the one that came along and killed him. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And I kind of use that imagery in the book as like, as I I have this insight uh, and I I use the phrase and then he bowed his head and died. Um, And that was very much the experience I had. But that's not where the story ended for you. I mean, you kind of, how long did you fake it in church? Like, like two years, two years two years did you ever like like in a really emotional worship song or something you ever close your eyes and like raise your hands like you know like it's like your christian colleges where kids like even the kids that don't believe in god say grace because they don't want to get judged like are you like all right i gotta raise my hands i gotta look like i'm believing look like i'm believing i, I would close my eyes a lot uh so people didn't see me rolling them um <laughs> like you, to sing worship songs you don't believe in god is to like sing here comes santa claus in july it's that same feeling like, this is absurd. What are we doing? This doesn't make any sense. And it was worse because I played in the band. So I could like enjoy when I, the Sundays I was playing, I could enjoy just the act of playing music without really paying attention to the lyrics. Uh, but when I was down in the in the congregation singing, no, it, it was absurd. <laughs> I mean, it was completely uh, absurd. And so I, 
I would just close my eyes and not sing, which looked like I was, you know, kind of in a state of quiet worship when I was really just waiting for the song to be over. And and wait, like you you mentioned that you went to a conference and things changed. Like what was, what was the change like? And, you know, can you say a little bit about, and and, and some of it involved Rob Bell. Yeah, Bobby B. <laughs> Bobby B. That's what you call him, Bobby no, B. Pete Holmes calls him Bobby B. And it just makes me laugh because uh, Pete Holmes can get away with a lot of things because he's a comedian that other people couldn't. What about B squared? Just B squared. Ooh, I like that. I like hey, that B, a lot. Hey, B squared, come on the show if you dare. <laughs> B squared, come on if you dare. Yeah, he. Uh, you know, Rob had been his books had been a part of my faith journey. Uh, really my faith exit, but I held on to Christianity. Thanks, Rob. Long, well, <laughs> it's more accurately, I hang on to my faith longer than I would have without his work. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They yeah. were like a last ditch effort to continue to hold on to historic Christianity. And uh, he had this conference and I was an atheist and I didn't want to go and I got invited. And But it was about creativity, and I worked in advertising. And anyone who's worked in advertising knows you're in constant fear that you'll never have another idea. Like, the meeting with the client is in 40 minutes, and you and the team still have no ideas. And walking to the meeting, you get a campaign idea that you then pitch the client, right? That happens over and over and over. Because in advertising, everyone thinks they can do it because you just need to have a good idea. No, you need to have 12 good ideas a day, right? It's a really brutal business. Do you think that's why they drink so much in Mad Men? It's just so stressful. You got like people in Mad Men drink less than people who actually work in advertising. Oh, wow. That's the the Mormon version. Uh, Yeah. I mean, advertising is a a very stressful business and there's a lot of self-medicating that happens in it. Um, so if this guy, I'd followed Rob's work and I didn't believe in God anymore, but he's a great creative and it just seems like he has idea after idea, after idea, after idea. And if he was going to have a conference where I could learn kind of the secrets of cultivating my own creativity, that was worth sitting in a room with Christians one more time. So I, I went to the little conference, 50 people. And, um, at first it was great. Because it it was really inspiring and it did talk a lot about the creative process. And then it kind of, as rooms of Christians will do, turned into an impromptu dismissal, communal dismissal of atheism. And that offended me because I was an atheist. So I stood up and said so. And, uh, you know, the details are in the book. So if people want to hear a lot, they can, they can check it out there. But uh, uh, I basically, you know, told Rob, how can anyone who understands how the universe works believe in God? <laughs> Very pointed. And Rob's response was incredibly gracious and probably alone is worth picking up the book um, because he did write what people of faith almost always do wrong in terms of how he responded to me. And and that comes through really well in the book, by the way. I mean, like I like you. I mean, I could feel the pastoral acceptance like through the pages of the book in that section. I mean, like you communicate that incredibly well. Uh, it, it, that really comes through in, in a concrete way. Yeah, you know, and that was that was. I haven't said this in an interview before, but uh, or anywhere. But that wait, was... wait, 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 CNN. I'm tweeting. Wait a second. <laughs> I've got an exclusive. Well, I mean, that was maybe one of the hardest parts of the book to write because to get to that point, I had to like reveal my inner monologue in response to things Rob usually says to comfort people who are afraid of atheism. So, like his little quips about atheism and evolution, like. I include what he says and my internal response to it, which Rob's a really good friend. And right before I, he kind of becomes this this incredible figure of guidance and comfort and support, I, I kind of take apart what he said <laughs> about a lot of things. And that was so hard to do, but I, I, I had... And we talked about it. I told him I was going to do that. But for the reader, for the skeptical reader to understand that I really am with them, I had to vocalize things I would usually never vocalize that are from my internal monologue. Um, because I have a peacemaking personality, and I don't like to make any kind of a, a stink like that. Um, but I, I hope, I'm glad you say that because my hope was that people would see, you know, none of that matters in the light of how gracious his response was. And um, that, that what I, I hope people take away from that is one of the best things the church can do is, is learn to be truly gracious, loving people, even in the face of controversy or disagreement. And he gave you your nickname, right? Science Mike. He popularized Mike. it, yeah. Um, Are you smarter than, you're smarter than Rob Bell, right? Jeez. 
Schraub is one of the smartest people I've ever met. And his mind. That's a, that's a yes. That's a yes. No, you did his, say that's a yes. That's a yes. He thinks five times faster than I do. He's easily. Um, I mean, what did the, you get on your SATs? I didn't take them. You're so, you're that smart. You didn't even take the SAT. See, <laughs> you're up. You're like Harvard. I don't need accreditation. I don't stoop to that. I bet you Rob is at best 1100. At oh, best. I have no idea. I'm Rob is wicked smart and, and his brain is fast. So, um, I'd be I'd be careful uh, betting against Rob's intellect. Um, Maybe twelve hundred. And I don't like really self-identify. Like I don't. My intelligence isn't a big part of my identity. That's not. Um, so I'd always I'm always feel a little awkward because it, it very frequently happens these days that people like refer to me as being intelligent. It's always kind of disorienting for me when people do. <laughs> and he's humble too, ladies. He's humble too. I mean, look at this. He's a 10. He's a 10. So, <laughs> so no, I was, as a bullied kid, right? You can't have everyone your whole life for your, you know, the first 10 years uh, you walk the earth, have every single peer tell you that you're terrible and then just suddenly be able to hear things like that and truly accept them. Yeah, so you talk more, more that. pretty explicitly about struggles with acceptance as a kid and just, and and yeah, struggles with weight and with identity and, and being bullied. I mean, how do, how do you feel like that, the experience of being bullied has shaped your own sense of spirituality and understanding of faith? It's the greatest gift I've ever gotten. It, wow. it, it more than anything else shapes my entire approach to God, to the Christian faith, to faith in general. Uh, everything is, is through the lens of bullying and suffering and rejection. And because I have been rejected so deeply, and because I have suffered from that so profoundly, I cannot stomach for a moment the idea of anyone feeling that same sense of rejection and suffering. Hmm. And um, that's what my all of my work is compelled by, is people push to the margins and inviting them back in, and if necessary, pushing back on the bully to say, you have to leave them alone. Um, and that, that's whether that's whether that's people doubting, whether that's marginalized groups because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, whether that's people of color, anything in my work you'll see is through the lens of I have been bullied, so I can't tolerate bullying. It's really interesting when a, a nine, like a peacemaker on the Enneagram is prophetic because it's a, a very ironic. It's a gentle, like you, like you, <laughs> like I see that now as you say that, like I, as I think back to the book quickly, I mean, I don't think as fast as Rob Bell, but I could, you know, recollect it. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, as I think, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, dude, but it's so erratic. I mean, you know, it's not, like there are some people that, uh, that those same concerns animate their work. They're a little more in your face. So, uh, you're, you're kind of, I mean, there's, and I mean this, you know, it's a sincere compliment. I mean, you're, it's an erratic prophetic tone. Right. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I would say I work really hard on that, but it's just, it's how I'm wired. It's just because you're a nine and you yeah. got no guts. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's a true. That's a real statement. Uh, no, you have a, as as you start to you start to rebuild your faith after after that. I mean, you you talk about finding God in the waves. So you're like looking at the ocean. Where was it? that? That was in Southern California, right? Laguna Beach, California. Laguna yeah. Beach. The seals were the seals there. It was night. No seals. Just a. Just a blinding bright light. Or maybe the seals are in La Jolla. I guess they're in La Jolla. Uh, and so you saw that you had this mystical experience and you begin sort of, you begin wandering back in a circuitous way to faith, but a different kind of faith than you moved out of. Dramatically different. Yeah. So what if you, if you were going to describe for our listeners, which, you know, and look, book sales depend on this. So make it good. I, like, <laughs> what's, what's, what's the, what's the biggest difference? If you had to tweet it, like get it down, a, you know, to a tweetish uh, summary, what's the biggest difference between your faith now and the faith that you disinherited? My old faith was all about uh, mining ideas from the earth, like diamonds that I guarded jealously with clenched fists. And my new faith is an outstretched open hand where ideas land like butterflies and they stay as long as they stay. And I'm grateful for the gift. But I, if I tried to hold them like the old ideas, it would crush them. It's much more fragile. It's much more open. Um, both beautiful in their own ways, right? Diamonds aren't uh, 
ugly, um, but they're also not living. And my old faith was about mastering reality, and my new faith is about accepting it as a gift. Do you think there's something like about a lot of evangelical Protestants that it, that are in some ways, you know, children of the Reformation? But it seems like like the whole justified by Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. It never gets into the epistemology or how they know things. <laughs> So there's a, what, I mean, what, as I as I, I, I as I read your work, it it, it seems like uh, it, I think of like the whole image where you know with Jesus in the boat and the disciples, you know, in the midst of the storm, so worried and anxious because it's going to capsize, and Jesus is kind of saying, "Well, I'm in the boat, and so it, you know, you're okay." And I wonder, you, you seem like your faith after this sort of disinherit and reacquiring faith, it, it, it seems like a, a lot more, I don't know if secure is the right word, but a peaceful. I mean, it doesn't, it, it seems like you're, there's a, uh, a bold humility about it <laughs> that I think it seems to be, it, it seems to bring you a lot of comfort. Absolutely. Comfort and peace uh, I have like I've never had before through this, this approach, this posture of faith. Um, because I, I, I had the same amount of certainty about the world frankly, about the afterlife, about God, as a Baptist as I did as an atheist. And it's so such a pressure to feel like you have the world figured out. There's, there's almost a sense of responsibility or accountability if you know how everything works. So, as a Baptist, I know that there's an afterlife and I know what's required to have a good one. So, I now have a responsibility to tell the world about it. And then as an atheist, I'd, I'd seen through that, that foolish illusion that my peers were still falling for. And how much of an obligation do I have to help them find the truth? Um, and that's something I wrestled with. And now, are you kidding me? I don't know anything. I'm wrong about so much all the time. I find out new things I'm wrong about every day, and I have no ability now to put myself in some position of superiority over someone who holds a different view. I understand that we're all just trying to get through life, to try to, to do the right thing for other people, to struggle with our our innate desire to watch out for ourselves and our tribe first. And most people are, are trying to turn away from that in their life today. So, uh I instead of seeing people of different ideas as as outside the tribe or even enemies, instead I see this this kind of universal brother and sisterhood of humanity. And because I've I've fallen out of so many different belief systems in a row, uh, to kind of transcend them, and and that's incredibly comforting when when I can look into the eyes of any person and see myself. Um, it's much harder to to count them as an enemy, and that's that's very peaceful. It's very peaceful. And you say you don't know anything, but you still know more than Rob Bell, right? Than old Robbie B, right? I mean, like, you still know more than him, right? right? I mean, that's, that's, that goes without saying. He's calling you Science Mike. You know, I mean, you got to know something. Uh, you ever see the movie uh, American Hustle? No, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I love that when he describes the microwave. It's a science oven. It cooks with science. <laughs> like, you know, that's how, I've, that's how like, I envision Rob Bell with you. Look, this guy, he taught me about the science of it. <laughs> It cooks with science. So you have these axioms about faith and you can, as you're kind of like, it, it's almost like this, uh, like, like Descartes, you know, sitting in the uh, alleged oven or whatever. And I mean, hopefully it wasn't on when he was doing this, but thinking, what can I know is true? You know, and um, you kind of have these, you kind of strip the faith down. And like one of them, I think is so great. You say sin is at least volitional action or inaction that violates human consent or produces human suffering. Sin comes from the divergent impulses between our lower and higher brain functions and our evolution-driven tendency to do things that serve ourselves and our tribe. Even if this is all it is, it is destructive and threatens human flourishing. And in each of these axioms, faith, God, prayer, afterlife, the church, you have Jesus, you say, you know, Jesus is at least this, you know, or sin is at least this. Do you find yourself like, like, how often do you like fluctuate between, you know, the at least and the more than at least? Like, is that a kind of daily, is there pendulum swinging that goes on? Is it there used to be, there used to be a lot of pendulum swinging and now not, not much, not much at all. Okay. So you've, what do you, what do you think like accounted for some of the equilibrium? Uh, contemplative practice and mysticism. So, so, it, so in some level it's a, it's sort of a, do you think, is, is it like mindfulness kind of stuff? Do you think there's yeah. just like. Yeah. 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 Again, I'm, I don't treat life like a puzzle. 
I'm not trying to get to the end. I'm not trying to beat the final boss battle. I'm not trying to balance out the equation. So I, I came to a good place where I realized I could scientifically defend my practice of faith. And now I just take that for granted and practice my faith. And um, and it's contemplative. So I, mm. I do a lot of meditation and I sit in stillness in the presence of the divine. And through that love, that genuine, I, I hope it's obvious in the book, I do have a deep love for God. And through that love and that practice of love through contemplation, I come to a knowledge of God. Um and, and that includes some pretty wacky things, like a belief that Jesus resurrected from the dead. But I understand that mystical knowledge can't be turned into a fact claim. So I won't turn around and say, it's a historical fact everyone must accept that Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore these things. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is an idea similar to Martin Luther King saying, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Scientifically speaking, the moral arc of the universe bends toward entropy and heat death. <laughs> but uh, Martin Luther King, I'm surprised. This. I'm surprised no one ever wrote a folk song with that title. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I mean. Like that may be more scientifically accurate. But the belief How that the moral many arc of the years universe the sun burns out. <laughs> exactly right. So in the midst of this entropy, how do we find hope and create peace? And a very mystical idea. A non-empirical idea, like the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, is what propelled the civil rights movement to work against seemingly impossible odds and systems of oppression for human justice in the same way that my belief that God is an empty tomb kind of God propels my life to work that would otherwise seem impossible. Yeah. When you, I found it when you said that your life's not a puzzle anymore, you know, to be fixed or solved, like, you know, Luther, I think it's in the uh, Heidelberg disputation or something. says that, you know, a theology of glory has to sort of call evil good. It kind of has to, it, it can't, it can't accept reality kind of as it is, or as a theology of the cross kind of accepts the messiness of life. And it, I mean, it sounds like that's part of what faith, what, what at least the transformative journey of faith you've been on is helped you accept life as it is, uh, rather than, you know, have to make it fit some kind of ideology or framework or schema. Is that, I mean, is that, is that, does that ring true for you? Yeah. I mean, perfectly. <laughs> I mean, what, right. what, maybe uh, I'm smarter than Rob Bell too. Well, this is, I mean, that's my point about like when people say, you know, what do you do with doubt now? I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? What is there to doubt? Like that? I don't even, it's hard for me, you know, I mean, I do doubt. I doubt things all the time. Doubt is what encourages me to ask questions about things, but I don't have the same zeal to prove and disprove. Um, it's much more like walking down a path and just enjoying what you see. Um, and that's, that's a different posture than walking down a path with a pickaxe and a shovel, uh, trying to unearth everything and figure out everything about the path or even trying to engineer the path, you know, pave it and add drainage. Uh, that's not what, that's not what I do anymore. Um, I, I try as best as I can to accept things as they are. Now that doesn't mean, um, not working to change some things, right? Anything that is injustice, I, I, there's a moral obligation to work against. Um, but that doesn't mean, um, that I necessarily approach those things with like an epistemological certainty. I think Descartes, frankly, um, was more certain about uh, his rationalism than I am my empiricism. Like, you know, I, I have a I have a real bent towards uh, nihilism sometimes because what what can we really really demonstrate empirically? Not much. Um, certainly not that the universe exists in any meaningful way. And that that kind of takes me to Ecclesiastes and uh, a book of the Bible where Coelette, the teacher, is is kind of talking about how everything's just a mist, a vapor, and everything is meaningless, which is really kind of a very dark idea until you embrace it. And then there's a freedom on the other side because it, in, in many ways it lowers the stakes. Yeah, there's this great old hymn called Love, I think William Cowper wrote it, I think Love Constrained to Obedience. And the, the refrain is great, it says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty to choice. Ooh, that's phenomenal. So it sounds like, I mean, I guess it sounds like before faith was like imperative indicative, like do this and the reality will will come about. And now it sounds like you're more in an indicative imperative mode, like like the, the state of being, this is what's real. And I'll let the implications of it kind of flow from that rather than make my, my actions have to make reality. Like I'll 
they'll flow from what I believe is 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 true and good and beautiful. I feel like you're articulating my ideas better than I did in the book in this interview. That's just kind of the you don't need Rob Bell. Dude. <laughs> you don't need Rob Bell, dude. I'm your guy. I'm your guy. All right. You tell you tell you tell Robbie B. You tell B squared that uh, you got a new pitch guy right here. Uh, oh, just, that was that was extremely well said. Now you've been in. You were in Blue Like Jazz. The right? movie. You're, yes. Yeah, you were kind of. There's a scene where you're in a church. In the church, you've lost a little weight since then. You say, and I've lost book. a lot of weight since then. All right. So, ladies, when you see him in this, he he looks much different now. He's he's about eighty five pounds different. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot less. That's that's a, that's an amazing weight loss. Uh, are you? Do you think that like this book will become a movie? My book. <laughs> Yeah, and will it do better than Blue Like Jazz? Why would why would that book become a movie? That would be I don't think it would be a good movie. Well, I mean, you could put like some I don't know. You could put Transformers Transformers in it or something. I mean, yeah, you could maybe put zombies. Like, like the second half of the book isn't even like a, a narrative. It's it's topical. I don't know how you would you would I don't know. And you put I, the you rock know, in it. That's your best. It's a buddy movie. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> it's, it's, if the, someone comes it's the existential soul tortured with the rock and says, we're going to make, we want to buy the film rights to your book and make a movie. I say no. And then they say, but the rock is going to play you. Well, never mind. I'm signing that contract. Yeah. I was thinking the rock would be like your, but I mean, Louis C. Harris movie plays you and the rock is like your buddy. <laughs> no, no, I'm out. I'm like out. He's the likable, like a jolly giant that kind of like keeps you out of trouble. And hey, actually, the if you did that, if Louis C. K. was played by me, then the rock could play my friend Jeb, who is, is a, 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 a rather large man in stature. So that, that actually could work. Has Rob Bell ever pitched this idea? I mean, I'm telling you, you don't need, you need me. I can, <laughs> no, Rob I can has pitch. never pitched the idea. Jeez, of the, of the what's film. that guy doing? Tell him to get off, the, <laughs> stop surfing and start creating. Uh, yeah, he, he mainly helps me um, go through the head work of becoming a public figure. That's, that's what, that's one thing really Rob helps me a lot with. Well, if you'd done that job, you'd understand, you'd, you'd be, have a vision for this being a movie. If you did that, if you did that work, but <laughs> allegedly he's doing that. Uh, <laughs> Mike, you know, thanks for taking some time with me. You know, I think, uh, I feel like this is like the Protestant Reformation hour or something, but I think, you know, in Cal, in the beginning of Calvin's Institutes, he says that, you know, knowledge of God, knowledge of self, this is sort of what life's about. And it doesn't matter what, where you start. If you have real knowledge of self, it leads you to knowledge of God. And if you have real knowledge of God, uh, it, it will lead you to self-knowledge. And I feel like your book is like a demonstration of that. I feel like it's, you could read it as a story about faith and the God in, in whom you have faith, but also it's a story of self-exploration. And, and again, in a way that's, that uh, you, you managed doing that without starting be, being about you in the worst sense. It's, it's about you in the best sense. And, and mm. for that, I, I just want to say to uh, our listeners, it's, it's, it'd be a great book for anybody, wherever they're at in their faith, uh, because I think it's a very invitational or if they have no faith at all or whatever their stance toward religiosity, because I think it's a really invitational uh, piece of work that, you know, I felt like I knew myself better after reading it. Hmm. That's, that's my, my greatest hope for that book. So, <laughs> um, you know, I had, I had a, a, a atheist friend of a friend kind of confront me about like, well, I'm, I'm I bought your book because a friend told me to read it. And I, I started on the, index and read the axioms and i'm just i'm not impressed and i said well you know go return the book <laughs> who was that person name names oh I'm not. Gonna let's put that. their twitter account out there but he, you know he said uh he said uh, he said what do you mean that's what kind of response is that for an apologist to sell someone who's interested in return the book i was like i'm not an apologist like it don't mess the spine up and you can get your 14 dollars back <laughs> And uh, he said, no, I'm going to read it, but I'm just going to tell you, you've got a lot of work to do to impress me. And then he started, started sending me messages chapter by chapter. And by the end of the book, he said, this is nothing what I expected. He said, it's there's it's not a work of apologetics at all. And I was like, it's not meant to be. It's, 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 a, it's a book that's reflective so that you can be reflective. And um, there's no like, you know, there's no there's no prescription. There's no place I'm trying to take the reader other than to a place of uh, self-examination and self-knowledge. And uh, uh, it's really great to hear that that was your experience with the book. Mike, I'm not returning my book, but I might give it away. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. To someone that needs it. Yeah. Th thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. And good luck with your book and with all. Oh, and do you want to like plug your podcasts like shamelessly? 
She yeah, I've got, I've got two shows. First of all, if you want to learn more about the book, you can go to findinggodinthewaves.com. And I've got a series of videos that kind of explore the different topics of the book. If, if this podcast provoked your interest, but not so much that it would take you to Amazon, <laughs> just go to that website. I also host a weekly show called Ask Science Mike. There's a question and answer show where I just answer audience questions. And I also co-host the Liturgist podcast where we take apart topics through the lenses of science, art, and faith. And I'm a new listener to the podcast and I, I will tell you that they are great so please listeners check out the podcast check out the book go to amazon buy a book and buy a copy for yourself and one for a friend <laughs> oh man thanks mike i <laughs> Thank appreciate you. it Don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. Streetlights, people, don't stop. Don't stop. Good morning, even though many of you are listening to this probably in the afternoon or evening or Saturday morning or some other point in your day. But it's morning here among the three of us. I, as usual, jumping once more into the breach with David Saul, the animating force of all that is Mockingbird, coming to us from Charlottesville, Virginia. Hello, David. I think it should be now the animating force of all that is, period. Don't Just, you guys yeah. think? I think yeah. it's time to time to go up a level here. Yeah. Several Meta- levels, but yes. <laughs> Metaphorically and metaphysically, it seems like an overstatement. But <laughs> doing great, doing great. Thanks for uh, excited to be on the cast today. You're welcome. You're very welcome. Sarah Condon, yeah. Texas. How is it? Good. Good. Yeah, we're and, things are great. And today is your anniversary. It is my tenth wedding anniversary. Yes. Happy anniversary Thank you. to you. Thank you. Happy anniversary to you. Happy anniversary, dear Sarah and Josh. What's going on? Happy man. anniversary He's to do the whole you. Thing. Yeah. What awesome. are you doing for? What are you doing for your uh, anniversary? Well, it's it's very exciting. We're um we have a, a a festival at our church and school tonight, and as my husband is the rector, he will be in the dunking booth. And I will stand around and manage a five-year-old and a two-year-old and eat fried chicken. So it's it's mm. it's very exciting. It's going to be deeply romantic. It's like Paris. Yes, yeah. In a few I'm short sure. months, Sarah, everyone's going to know the ins and outs of your relationship uh, <laughs> when they, when they read this book that I'm uh, currently working on with her. Uh, there is a lot of uh, love for Josh uh, flowing from me. Uh, and, uh, especially today some of the confessions are really incredible that you provide in the book thanks he's a good guy it's been a, an amazing 10 years i'm very grateful for him how many pairs of cargo shorts in the uh wardrobe still left two two yeah. one of them are, are original yeah two, original two more than i have yeah i know it is. <laughs> two cargo shorts no tucks that's my guy there he is a gentleman <laughs> and a scholar <laughs> All right, so David, if I was looking to pregame for Halloween, like really get my game on right before I really tear it out for Reformation Day, and I, I was looking for an amped up weekend, what could I do? Well, on the eve of the eve of the eve of All Hallows' Eve, you could go to Oklahoma City, the home of Will Rogers, and uh, join us for our first ever conference uh, event we've done there. It's a free event, uh, October 28th, 29th. It's gonna, it's just coming together super well. We're kind of in the last two weeks before it, but, um, yeah, I hope people can come, but also tell your friends, uh, you know, send prayers and, um, yeah, just brace yourself if you're living anywhere near Oklahoma. I like it. It sounds like it's going to be a rousing. Time. You know what? It's funny. One year, I think it was before we married, Lindy and I, like, just, we had, like, a Batman and Robin costume. Mm. And we just, like, went to, like, our favorite bar at Halloween and just sat there and had a beer as Batman and Robin. People are kind of looking at us. We're like, look, don't you think crime fighters need to take the edge off once in a while? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Were you Robin? I, I, I'm, no, I'm, I was Batman. Oh, okay. I was Batman. 
I was, uh, Lindy was like feminine Robin mm-hmm. uh, as our Halloween costumes generally. So that's a nice segue into sexism, Halloween costumes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, David, let's talk Samantha B. Sure. Full frontal. Now, full frontal, this show um, that's been getting a ton of headlines. Uh, there, we're, we're, I'm, I'm referring specifically to a headline. <clears throat> in the Atlantic uh, from Megan Garber, who wrote about the anger of Samantha B. And uh, I guess of, as, as the election's getting closer and as the season goes on and the circus kind of continues, she writes that um, B's anger uh, here, w- which was sort of maybe a, um, has been a uh, real uh, tool and, uh, re- you know, her strength is, looks like it's starting to become a liability. Now, this is kind of, I, I think she's taking a risk here because Samantha B seems to have inherited some kind of mantle, uh, from what I can tell. But she writes, B, in dismissing Trump and Bush as drooling hyenas, was living in the tenor of this anger-reveling election, meeting the Trump revelations, not with the Democrats' borrowed motto, when they go low, we go high, but rather with the opposite logic. When they go low, we limbo right along with them. Full Frontal said it as its uh, challenge from the outset to parse the delicate lines between horror and humor, between outrage and hilarity, provoking not just laughter, but impact and action. Monday's show, though, this past Monday's show, featured very little of either. It offered, for the most part, a string of invective that simply reiterated what anyone who had paid attention to what played out over the weekend was already well aware of. Um, she then Garber goes on to say that... Um, Something a little confusing to me, she talks about how anger and humor don't quite go together. And when I think most comedians I know and I'm familiar with are extremely angry and that's they're, they're able to harness that anger, uh, I mean, not all of them, and that's not exclusively what they do. But um, she says that sort of, you know, she talks about Trevor Noah and, and being a little bit lukewarm and icy and cool. Uh, she, she she concludes by saying, B may have just illustrated the opposite problem. Heat can be just as challenging as coolness. It is very, very hard to do satire when you are angry. Uh, it is very hard to do actually much of anything when you're angry. And, um, you know, this is something we've talked on a little bit about the sort of the clapter phenomenon and Seth Meyers. And you talked about it last week in terms of SNL. But it's, it's clearly something that's taking over... Um, humor satire in this country and around the world where so it's it seems to have been been poisoned by a blatant uh rage and uh, also kind of preaching to the choir of a, what do they call it um vacuum or a uh, echo chamber ism so uh, i don't know i haven't actually seen this show um what have you guys watched it yeah i've watched some of it I'm just not, I don't know. I wasn't into this. I'm not buying it, Megan Garber. I, I think I think her show, and I, I really think that episode specifically just provided such so much catharsis through humor mm. um, for women. I was in Whole Foods yesterday, like running around trying to get stuff for, because tonight after we do this church festival for our 10th anniversary, we're actually going to have some nice cheese together after we put our kids to bed. So I'm just trying to grab stuff, right? And this guy walks up and there's a woman behind the cheese counter who works at Whole Foods. And he says to her, he's never met her before. And he says to her, hey, beautiful. And then strikes at this incredibly painful conversation with her where he asks her personal questions. And then he turns to me and tries to do the same thing. And I wanted to be like, dude, have you not seen the news? Your kind needs to stay in your house right now. Like I was so livid. Um, and so for me, I mean, I think what she's saying, and I know like it crosses lines for people and I know there's language and I know, you know, but for me, when she uses a phrase like adolescent boner bus to describe like (laughs) the clip, it's cathartic. Like I need someone to say it's not okay for, for, you know, any man to talk about or to women this way. So, and it's funny and I don't know. I, it makes me think of Quentin Tarantino and this stuff. Um, you know, he always gets so much heat for making, what is it? What is the, what did they describe his, the Holocaust movies like Nazi porn or Jewish porn or, you know, there's like this, like it's cathartic, like it's cathartic to, to say like, there's an injustice here and we're going to, we're going to claim so much control over it that we're going to laugh at it. So 
Mm. I don't know. I, 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 I like what she's doing. I do. Even though I know it's troubling for people, like I, I appreciate it because I came home and told my husband about Whole Foods yesterday and he's like, he's, my husband was like, we're just so lucky that you didn't hit him because it sounds like that's what you wanted to do. Um, mm. And I had a wine bottle in my hand. I mean, there was a whole fantasy that happened, but I did not hit him with the wine bottle. I, just get, I, get wor- I get worried about baptizing anger too much, though. I, I think that it, it, it really doesn't really go much of anywhere. Maybe, maybe the release valve is, is, is super helpful in certain ways, but it, uh, anger for anger's sake, is, it does, isn't that just compounding what, what's going on? But maybe that's not the job of a Yeah, but when you show. feel that powerless, like mm-hmm. when you feel so powerless is to see the stuff that we've seen and to hear this the stuff we've heard in the past week as women mm-hmm. and then to go out into public and to just be buying groceries and to have a man talk to you in a similar vein. It's like, all you want to do is be, I mean, hi, it's like you're blind with rage at that point. Um, yeah. Fair enough. So, I mean, I get what you're saying, but I just, I don't know, man. I, I, I'm, I am grateful for her voice, even if it is a little caustic for everyone. I'm angry. That Tic Tacs were maligned. I um, love Tic Tacs. There's that, Scott. I, and now, like, now every, like, the sound of Tic Tacs, like, clanking in your pocket now is, like, to a woman now, like, Jaws. The yeah. Thing. The other thing that people didn't pick up on... This was the most humble I've ever seen Donald Trump admitting a woman wouldn't sleep with him. Yeah. Like I was amazed. I was like, I can't believe they got that on tape. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's the. I mean, the, the other thing. Like, I mean, I'm just attracted to beautiful women. I mean, who's not attracted to beautiful women? Like, oh, what if, I mean, I just can't. I, I can't help it. It's so strange. That thing is. Yeah, I think. Uh, Didn't Tic Tacs like release a statement? Yeah. Yeah. They and do, like not, an official I, statement. They're like, we just for the record, we at Tic Tacs don't condone. <laughs> I just, yeah. like, oh my God. I tend to like the fruity Tic Tacs though. Maybe that means I'm not creepy. Because I think like, they don't really help your breath. I always get like, seriously, I, if I go to the grocery store. They're like store the banana get, strawberry Tic Tacs. Yeah. If I get a pack of Tic Tacs, it will be gone by the time I get home. I'll just like, I'll just like house the whole thing. I love Tic Tacs. Mm. I go back. We've re- we've re- referenced this before on the podcast, but your David, your dad, PZ, the one, the only, the inimitable. His January twenty eighth entry in the Mockingbird devotional says, "I recommend we express our anger at God. Mm. He can take it. He is in the business of absorbing it. No one does it better." Jeremiah expressed his anger at God. Paul expressed it in a plaint concerning his thorn in the flesh. Jesus almost did it, but not quite. Rather, Christ expressed his dereliction to the Father. The psalmist seems often on the verge of expressing anger at God. Try it for a second. Stop blaming the SOB ruining your life and instead blame God, who by definition must be pulling the strings. Mm. That's amazing. There you go. We also have a Nobel Prize that's been given away. Yes. I mean, speaking of uh, someone who originally was channeling some anger, I think, and it's, it's always good for a, an incredible sort of uh, f- f- sense of indignation. Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for literature and uh, setting off a bit of a uh, debate about whether what he does is literature. I read some someone's tweet is like, you know, I, I get it, Nobel Committee reading books is hard. <laughs> but, um, you know, I happen to be uh, in full support of this decision while acknowledging that there are some uh, tricky logistics there. Just because I think Dylan is a prophet, I think he's an unbelievable uh, human being and unlike anyone uh, that we, we have on the planet. And I, I really, really strongly um, endorse his work. In fact, when I was writing that book about music, I I feel so strongly about Dylan. I couldn't write about him because I I feel like I respect him so much. I remember um, one of the one of my favorite things that is that why is that why I'm not mentioning the book too, David? <laughs> well, I couldn't think of anything to. It, there's so much that's been said about Bob Dylan, and there's so much that uh, there's so much bad or uninteresting things that have said. So I, I didn't feel like I had much to contribute there outside of just saying, "Hey, listen to him." Just just listen to him. Read the interview, for example, that he gave to Rolling Stone back in 2012, where he talked about his transfiguration. I have to use this opportunity to tell people about it, because um, 
the the interviewer Mikhail Gilmore opens this asks him like do you ever worry that people interpreted your work in misguided ways uh for example some people still see rainy day women as coded about getting high and he he responds he says it doesn't surprise me that some people would see it that way but these are people that aren't familiar with the book of acts that's so good and they ask him about oh you're you're so interested in everybody must get stoned <laughs> it's hard to kind of hard to misinterpret that one bob but uh he he talks about how let's not forget human nature isn't bound to any specific time in history he talks about being transfigured that when people ask him questions they're asking him of a person who's long dead i mean you watch as these two worldviews just collide with one another but the, the last um Quote, I have to read from it. He says, so live performance is a purpose you find fulfilling? And he responds, if you're not fulfilled in other ways, performing can never make you happy. Performing is something you have to learn how to do. You do it, you get better at it, and you keep going. And if you don't get better at it, you have to give it up. Is it a fulfilling way way of life? Well, what kind of way of life is fulfilling? No kind of life is fulfilling if your soul hasn't been redeemed. I mean, amen to that, right? I think it's a... He's got no time for these, uh, I don't know, pundits, I guess, asking him stuff. Then there's last thing, and I'll shut up, I promise, <laughs> is the, the interview he did with the North American Street newspaper uh, when he re- in 2009 when he released Christmas in the Heart, what might be his most ridiculous record of all time, and that's saying something. The interviewer says, you really give a heroic performance of O Little Town of Bethlehem. The way you do it reminds me a little of an Irish rebel song. There's something almost defiant in the way you sing, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I don't want to put you on the spot, but you sure deliver that song like a true believer. Dylan responds, well, I am a true believer. (laughs) End of response. (laughs) I mean, this guy, the fact that he would be awarded anything is just really a wonderful moment in, in the midst of a crazy time. I saw Bob Dylan in Jackson, Mississippi when I was a teenager, and um. I went with this very rowdy group of friends of mine, all who were Jewish, and they were all fixated on the fact as Jewish teenagers in Mississippi that he had, but he was, he, his conversion was through Messianic Judaism, right? Am I wrong about that? It was through the Vineyard Church, actually, but he, okay. be- then he became kind of interested in Messianic Judaism. Okay. So every time I think of Bob Dylan, I think of this friend of mine standing next to me, this Jewish guy yelling at Bob Dylan from the audience. He couldn't hear it, thank God, but like, are you still a Jew for Jesus? Um, but yeah, he, uh, he, he, he's, have you seen him in concert? I'm assuming you have. I have. Yeah, sure. And he's, yeah. he's notoriously hit or miss. I, I've seen him when he's been on and I've seen him when he's not been on. And, I just uh, think he does what he, I mean, I, and it's what I see in these interviews that I love so much is just, he's, he's very much himself. And so he just does what he wants to do. And, um, I, I really appreciate that. So, yeah. Scott, I bet Scott, you know, he's our karaoke guy. I bet he's got yeah. some karaoke stories for us. Yeah, well, I'm not just, okay, yeah, I'm a Dylan, I'm a big Dylan fan, and actually, when I went to college, Messiah College, they actually had a class on Bob Dylan that my friend taught, uh, who's the li- Jonathan Lauer, who's the librarian uh, at Messiah, great guy, and uh, I also do the best, like, a Rolling Stone in karaoke you've ever heard, any, I, that I've ever heard, no, I've never heard anybody as good as me at that, so I, I once got in Philly at McGillan's, I got a double shot, they let me sing twice, there's hundreds of people there, so it's like, it, you know, it, getting up there takes a while. He let me do back-to-back because of my Dylan. So that being said, uh, I'm a big Dylan fan. And the, PBS did a thing, uh, like that rockumentary thing. And when they got to Dylan, it's funny because they had Springsteen on. And he said, you know, Springsteen's just like, they're, they're, they're playing like, inter-split, inter, like they're splicing in clips of Like a Rolling Stone. And it, Springsteen's just like, you know, yeah. That's how it was. You know, they're like, like a Rolling Stone. Yeah, all alone, like a Rolling Stone. It's how it was. And like Dylan was, uh, Springsteen was like, like speechless in like a, a moving way. I remember just thinking like, wow. Uh, yeah, I just, just said, and, and this last song at my funeral, I mean, I hope it's not soon, uh, but it's going to be when the ship comes in, because I think that's mm-hmm. like the ultimate eschatological um, song and it's, it's funny it was written before he became a christian but the, in the end they say you know oh the foes will rise with the sleep still in their eyes and they'll jerk from their beds and think they're dreaming but they'll pinch themselves and squeal and know that it's for real the hour when the ships when the ship comes in yeah it's just great 
I thought great. for sure you were going to say death is not the end. That was the one you were going to go with. <laughs> nah, no, no. It's um, and the thing is too like, obvious. Too obvious. Yeah, don't have an Episcopal funeral. Like, don't let me run it because I'll just I'll I'll play lift out the cross. So it'll be done. It's not a bad one. <laughs> I think also one of the testimonies to Dylan as an artist is how many people cover his music and cover it and reinvent it. Like, I mean, mm. in the 30th anniversary, Dylan's 30th anniversary uh, of his debut album, when they had that concert in New York and all those people covered his stuff. So that's the cover that Richie Havens does of just like a woman. It like reinvents the song. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. And my parting shot is uh, from a book called Dylan Redeemed uh, by Stephen Webb from Highway 61 to Saved is the subtitle. Um, he talks about the song I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine from the John Wesley Harding album in 1968. And he says, in this dream song, Dylan sees Augustine searching for souls to no avail. Augustine is preaching in a voice without restraint, which is a good description of how Dylan sang prior to this album. Dylan recognizes that he is one of those who put him not to death. Uh, the song ends with Dylan terrified and crying, bowing his head and putting his fingers against the glass. Dylan's song takes Chesterton's statement one step further. Chesterton says that the saint we need is inevitably the saint we cannot understand. Dylan says we live in a time without saints altogether, or at least without saints we can recognize. Yet, the song leaves us with the hope that the very absence of saints might be enough to remind us of what we are missing. Mm. Mm. Nice. Wow. Thank, you. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you. I was going to say, when, aren't we going to get a little bit of the impression, Scott? Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, let's move on. Anxiety. Yeah. We'll come up when the winds will stop and the breeze will be cease to be breathing like the stillness in the wind before the hurricane begins. The hour that the ship comes in. And I see My singing is way better. My singing uh, version is so. Some, at some point, if someone at a Mockingbird event takes me to do karaoke, I promise I will. I will do it. The offer's on the table, people. From Dylan to anxiety, or the American Psychological Association released some preliminary data this past week from its upcoming uh, Stress in America report it does every year, especially on the nation's level of anxiety, specifically around this election. And what they found was that around half of the people surveyed, 52% said that the election is a very or somewhat significant source of stress in their lives. The breakdown by party is about even 59% of Republicans and 55% of Democrats say that this election is causing uh, them stress. And then, you know, they they actually break it down by generation too. And the sort of people over 71 are the most anxious, followed by millennials, 19 to 37. They're the second most anxious crew. Gen Xers, which I guess describes most of us, we're on the right on the border, at least of this uh, particular breakdown, uh, are the least. Um, maybe that's because they're chasing around toddlers. I don't know. But um, uh, how, are you guys stressed out? I, I get stressed, like, starting new serial dramas that they're going to cancel them, like, that I'm going to get attached, especially on networks. Like, HBO is pretty good about it, but I'm always afraid. Like, that, I, have, I have too much anxiety about television. Westworld. Westworld. Well, it's, it. on H- it's on HBO. That's okay. why like, we have hope that it'll actually run its course, because I feel like so many... I could tell you so many shows I got so into. And then something like Zoo is it's getting renewed for like a third season. It absolutely makes no sense. So. so, well, that's Sarah, are you stressed out? Well, yeah. And just for the record, I'm a millennial. So I just want to like oh. this general statement. I'm like, right. I'm like right at the cusp of that. You like a, a like I appreciate a woman who will correct people about her age. Um, we love the millennial. We love the poorly educated millennials. We love the well educated millennials. We love the millennials. I'm super anxious, but I'm just super. I'm. I'm not. Um. I'm not anxious about what's going to happen to the country. Honestly, I'm really not. Like come November. Um. Um. I'm anxious about people in my life who love each other who are at completely opposite ends of who they're voting for. I think uh, that that yeah. makes me more anxious than anything. Um, you know, the hurt that I've already seen people cause one another and, um, and just the hurt that will come afterwards. Uh, cause I think we saw that with Obama. I mean, we saw that, um, we saw that with George Bush. Like we've, that's gotten that. I think that is, it's, you know, it's more and more divisive, right? And the fallout is always more and more heavy. You know, people have bumper stickers that say, don't blame me. I voted for whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's what I worry about. Yeah. I saw one that said, uh, Great Big Meteor 2016. J- just ended already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
There you go. Eschatological. I liked, there was, I liked the meme that said, like, I, I'm not going to get it right, but it was like Hillary and, and Trump are, um, you know, pushed out into a boat in the middle of the ocean. Who's going to win? And it just says, America wins. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, it's, it just is so, it's so divisive. And it's, it's become a way um, for people. It's become another way to find something to, to hate one another over. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm ready for it to all be over. Well, certainly we're an anxious, anxious uh, crew already without an election happening. Uh, this, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, which, I mean, the final uh, item here in the, in the, that we were, wanted to cover today was this new book that's come out by Ruth Whitman, America the Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. We put some, a piece of it on the uh, website recently. And uh, then uh, Quartz uh, put up a, a excerpt as well from Whitman herself, and she talks about uh, anxiety as being fueled by our kind of happiness um, fixation or our aversion to negativity, the happiness industry. And she puts in a few, these are extra tidbits that I hadn't heard before. She said, the systematic packaging and selling of happiness is an industry estimated to be worth more than $10 billion, about the same size as Hollywood which is the other, I mean, I guess it's not counted in those who are selling happiness. Um, she says, Americans spend billions a year on mindfulness products and yoga, enough money, in fact, that savvy marketers have designated a whole new category they are calling spiritual spending. In a culture that loves consumerism, happiness has become the ultimate consumer product. And naturally, I mean, though this is me speaking, but the, the church would fall into a lot of those spiritual spending kind of uh, habits or um, strategies. But the, the, it gets best when she says, this is the American dream applied to the soul. The idea is that if you just put in enough emotional elbow grease, slog out enough hours of positive thinking, mindful coloring, gratitude journal keeping, and self-help book reading, you will ultimately be rewarded with true happiness. And, uh, you know, of course, what we find is that, uh, at least according to the World Health Organization, Americans are far and away the most anxious people on the planet, with nearly a third of people in this country likely to suffer from an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. So the emphasis on happiness and the uh, rise in anxiety uh, appear to be linked. Exactly what the causality is is unclear, but it uh, scientists have... Uh, in all, every experiment, Kim seems to confirm that the more intensely people value and pursue happiness as a distinct goal, the more likely they are to display symptoms of unhappiness, anxiety, loneliness, and even depression. She ends by saying that our happiness, uh, you know, it really has to do with the way Americans are going about happiness, that, are ha- that they do it too individualistically, too much alone by themselves, that our happiness depends on other people. She says, perhaps we would be better off sitting in the pub with our friends complaining about self-help books rather than actually reading them, which is a funny, a funny thing to say. Um, but again, happiness, I think... I, I feel like Sarah and I already do that on the phone. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, happiness. I from what I'm what from where, where I'm standing is, Americans want to make it like everything. They want to make it into something they can achieve. They want to make right. it into something they can they can pull off on their own steam. Christians believe in uh, happiness, joy, contentment, not sort of lifelong euphoria. But I, I I think we see happiness as something that's received, and uh, to the extent that it's uh, even uh, that you're happy, you're probably not even thinking about it, like humility or something like that. It's um. We certainly experience happiness, but is it a work of the law or is it a gift from God? <clears throat> you you be the judge, people. Right, and there's no. I mean, happiness is, provides no theological context. That's the thing that I see over and over and over again. I mean, I can't tell you how many you know conversations I have with mother moms or women's Bible studies I'm in or whatever, where it's like you know, every week there's like a new fix, right? There's a new like candle you can buy or there's a new, there's a new class you can go to or there's a new book you can read. And, you know, and this is about happiness and this is going to make us all happy. And it's like, oh my God, just give up. Like, that's all I ever want to say. Just give up, give up on the whole thing, you know, like just give up. And because it's in this search that we, that we lose sight of everything that God has given us. I mean, it is in this search for happiness that we 
forget like the tenderness of our children and we forget how fortunate we are to be married for 10 years and we for you know it's it's in this endless search for for better that we miss out on how beautiful what we have is and you know I hesitate to even say that because I think people then go take it take it to this like yoga thing where like my you know the mindfulness like living in the now and like just give up on all of it like <laughs> you know like just stop having a mantra that would be my like like I think if I if I have a mantra in this world, it's like low expectations of everyone, especially me. Like, I, I don't know. I, I, I see we have a Lululemon store. Am I saying that right? You guys, do you know Lululemon? Am I saying that Lululemon. right? Lululemon. I always, I always Lululemon. heard it Lululemon. Okay. Then you're probably right. Cause I, I have know. no idea. I'd avoid it. It's like Deepak Chopra. I never know how to say his name and I don't need to. Um, <laughs> but like they, but like we have one of those stores nearby and I just, want to stand outside and like give people hugs like it 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 has become like this weirdly religious refuge where everyone walks out looking like they need a hamburger you know like i don't know (laughs) i have thoughts 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 and feelings (laughs) (laughs) happy anniversary (laughs) thank you i'm a delight to be married to (laughs) so upbeat I was rereading some stuff in Capon this week in the, the, the cookbook, The Supper of the Lamb. And he spends this extensive amount of time on, it, on the, com- the composition of an onion. It's amazing. I mean, it's, if you haven't read it, the first, it's amazing. And he says this, Berate me not, therefore, for carrying on about slicing onions in a world under the sentence of nuclear overkill. The heaviest weight on the shoulders of the earth is still the age-old idolatry by which man has cheated himself both of both creator and creation, and this age is no exception. If you prefer to address yourself to graver matters, well and good. Idolatry needs all the enemies it can get. But if I choose to break images in the kitchen, I cannot be faulted. Then he says, there is a Russian story about an old woman whose vices were so numerous that no one could name even one of her virtues. She was slothful, spiteful, envious, deceitful, greedy, foul-mouthed, and proud. She lived by herself and in herself. She loved no one and no thing. One day, a beggar came to her door. She upbraided him, abused him, and sent him away. As he left, however, she unaccountably threw an onion after him. He picked it up and ran away. In time, the woman died and was dragged down to her due reward in hell. But just as she was about to slip over the edge of the bottomless pit, she looked up. Above her, descending from the infinite distances of heaven, was a great archangel, and in his hand was an onion. Grasp this, he said. If you hold it, it will lift you up to heaven. One real thing is closer to God than all the diagrams in the world and probably all the happiness guru things and things of that nature. The great one, Robert Capon. Love it, Pastor Jones. Nice. Mm. So maybe I'll go chop some onions or something. There you go. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for yet another Mocking Cast. And I will talk with you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Mocking Cast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com if you like what you heard please go over to itunes give us a rating maybe even write a review hopefully a positive one it really helps or share it on social media pass it on to a friend as always the mocking cast is produced by yours truly scott jones now ably assisted by david peterson we exist because of the generosity support and enthusiasm of you our listeners and readers and for that we are eternally grateful have a great weekend and we'll catch you next week